0: how long can they last as the original bobbers of the world <laughs>
1: uh can you clarify can you clarify that question <laughs>
0: Hey guys, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of the Every Plant Story Podcast, the podcast where we share all kinds of plant stories from us here in the life of Gabriella Plants and all around our plant community. My name is Shane Malloy. I'm the owner and founder of Gabriella Plants, and we're so happy to have you guys as listeners on this podcast. And with me today on the pod, we have Brett, our botanist here at Gabriella Plants.
1: Hi, guys.
0: And Zach, as always, as well, our media director for Gabriella Plants, too. Hello, Good to see you, gentlemen, uh, where you've moved back to the Aloma offices, um, our shipping and fulfillment, and also our customer care offices um, to do this week's podcast. So um, lots of construction happening, but luckily they've left for the day at this point. So uh, yeah, how's things Chuck,
2: Chuck is finally getting a break.
0: <laughs> I know. I know. A much needed break, might I add. How's your week been? Pretty good. Pretty good? Yep. What's been going on at the greenhouses, Brett?
1: Uh, growing stuff as always, continually getting more tissue culture in, uh, sticking things from cuttings. I mean, we are, we are full, so lots of, lots of good things coming from spring.
0: That's awesome. So, on today's podcast, Brett, you wanted to go over some reclassifications, all kinds of details having to do with a particular kind of plant.
1: Yes, so, drumroll please. Today we are going to talk about epiphytic jungle cacti. Woo-hoo. Bow, bow, bow,
0: bow. Woo-hoo. Okay, now first question: What is a uh, what you just said?
1: Yeah, so epiphytic jungle cacti are plants in the family Cactaceae, but unlike their cousins, the cactus that live in deserts, they live in tropical rainforest conditions. So tropical cactus. Yes, that would have been a term I could have understood. <laughs> <laughs> So they have a completely different method of growing. So basically, cacti of the rainforest are different from cacti of temperate and desert zones. Cacti found in deserts grow in soil or sand to get moisture and are outfitted with round, waxy leaves. I'm going to air quote leaves here, and we're going to touch on that in a bit to reduce water loss. These cacti are often protected by sharp spines. However, many epiphytic jungle cacti lack spines and have elongated, again, air quote leaves for light absorption, not water retention. So, they grow completely different. So, they're still related. They have somewhat similar uh, characteristics as in how they look, but completely different growth mechanisms. Now,
0: maybe this is a dumb question, Zach,
1: but uh, do they still have things that can hurt
0: you? Because I know that's what comes to mind a lot with cactus.
1: Right. So, most epiphytic jungle cacti have absent or very small spines. Interesting. Uh, you would have to think that um, a cactus in the desert is using spines to keep away predators that basically cacti are giant balls of water.
0: Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. That
1: in the desert is really hard to come by. And so any sort of animal when they see a cactus, if it didn't have spines, would go and devour it to to get that water. Mm-hmm. Um, so they really rely on those spines for protection. Um, in... The rainforests, you don't need that as much because there isn't really any sort of like herbivory. There's not really that many things trying to go out of the way to eat an epiphytic jungle cacti because there are you know nutrients and supplies. I was gonna say you probably have a little bit more more
0: moisture in a exactly in a rainforest than a desert. I mean that makes sense. So they don't have really. You know, the same defense mechanisms as they would in the desert. Yeah, so,
1: like, uh, we sell rickrack, which is a Solenocerius anthonianus. And so, I mean, they have some small spines on it, but nothing like you would think of, you know, like a golden barrel cactus or something like that.
0: What else makes them different from other
1: cactuses?
0: Or why are they called cactuses at that point?
1: So, basically they will get their nutrients from the air falling rain or like detritus which is leaf litter that lies in the tree branches um, and so they live their entire lives up in the canopy so epiphyte is going to be one of our terms for today epiphyte is Greek for epi which means upon and fight for plant so epiphytes are plants that grow attached to another plant but do not parasitize that plant
0: ah hitching a free ride Exactly. got it like I do with Zach sometimes to the
1: greenhouses <laughs> <laughs> Also, fun fact term for you, a porophyte is the term for the host plant of an epiphytic species. So if an epiphytic jungle cacti was growing on a tree, that tree would be a porophyte.
0: Mm. Interesting. All right. I vocabulary so, lessons with Brett right off the bat. And
2: it doesn't I, matter what type of tree or anything, no matter what it is. If, if it's if there growing is on something
1: it, growing on it, then it's a porophyte. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting.
0: So, not so in a way, a porophyte is a characteristic, but not a defining thing of a species? Exa- like, it either is or isn't?
1: Right. If it has something else growing on it, that, and it isn't being negatively affected, it's a porophyte. So, there are plenty of plants that could be porophytes. It's not, yeah, it's not a specific family or anything like so that.
2: So, if, like, the, the apples I forgot in my kitchen start growing mold, are those <laughs> now... The porophyte? That's a very good question, Um, Zach. I'm on Team Zach on this. Okay, so
1: the mold would be breaking down that apple, so technically Mm. it would be paratacizing it. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. good idea, but... uh, (laughs) Not quite the same. in the ballpark? It's in the ballpark. The the moss on the side of a tree. That tree is a porophyte. Oh, yeah. For Mm. the moss. Or
0: Resurrection Fern, one of my favorites. Exactly. That's awesome.
1: Interesting. Um, so, So super cool, but it's a completely different method of growing than when you think of arid cacti in deserts basically
0: what what do we know anything about why they are how they ended up in a rainforest versus like do we know anything more about basically how they got there
1: (laughs) um that's a good question i mean evolution has it that plants get dispersed and change throughout hundreds of thousands of years um I don't know where exactly on the phylogenetic tree that it branched off from, you know, barrel cacti or something like that. Um, but they are all, okay, so all cacti are in the New World, which is the Americas. There's actually only one species of cactus in the Old World, which is going to be your Africa, you know, Madagascar, Europe, yeah. Europe Asia. Um, and it happens to be an epiphytic jungle cacti. It's Ripsalis baccifera. So they think, they hypothesize, that basically this one species of ripsalis, the berries were transported by birds across the Atlantic Ocean hundreds of thousands of years ago.
0: Interesting. And Maybe even when the continents were a little bit closer.
1: Exactly. And it's actually been so long that those original seeds got transferred over to the new to the old world that there are now subspecies of ripsalis bassifera that are distinctly different from the new world species because they've been over there in madagascar and in africa for so long on
0: their own evolutionary track
1: they've gotten different characteristics now that's
0: nuts
1: so because all cacti except that one species are from the americas they all originally started from one place and then branched out from there and so to answer how exactly did that barrel cactus get up into a tree to then, you know, evolve mm-hmm. these traits, I'm not quite sure. Um, but it does make sense that obviously as conditions changed. As well, of course. You know, and,
0: uh, and if a plant ends up anywhere, whether or not it can be successful is something that we as humans would like hold the key to determine whether that's the case mm-hmm. but that doesn't stop the plant from trying right exactly. like if it has some moisture even though it's not what it's used to mm-hmm. it's still going to try to formally leaf. For, you know it's still going to try to do the plant thing even if it fails that's all it has
1: right and i mean so Living in epiphytic lifestyle gives these plants advantages in the rainforest. It allows them access to more direct sunlight, greater number of canopy animal pollinators, and the possibility of dispersing seeds via wind. If uh, a lot of these epiphytes, you have to think, if they're never touching the ground, they're up, you know, uh, tens of hundreds of meters up in the canopy. Um, They now have completely different access to resources than an arid cactus in the ground.
0: That's wild. Yeah. So, you mentioned a couple minutes ago, Brett, the leaf in air quotes. Yes. Tell me more
1: about that. Okay. So, I hadn't forgotten. Um, cacti are actually really, really cool in this mechanism that they've evolved. So, if you look at a regular barrel cactus or even a, an epiphytic jungle cacti, like uh, by my side here, I have what we sell as Selenocereus chrysocardium, known as fern leaf cactus. Um when you look at it, you may be quick to think, oh, it has leaves. These are leaves. But actually what they have are known as phyloclades, which can actually also be called cladophylls. So what they are is modified stems that actually act as Whoa. leaves. So morphologically, if you were to look at the structure internally of how they function... The entire round part of a cactus and all of the flattened parts that you see of, a, of an epiphytic jungle cacti, it's all stems. It's not leaves. Just a stem taking on essentially a leaf-like shape. And function, because they are now doing the photosynthesizing.
0: Whoa. Are they the only type of plant that can photosynthesize through their stem?
1: Uh, No. So there are actually um, some trees, uh form-like caudex swollen trees um, that will photosynthesize through their bark because a lot of them like i have uh in the back of the greenhouse i have ceba speciosa which is a big tree covered in thorns yeah and basically it's a deciduous tree so it, normally where they come from they go through periods of drought so what they'll do is they'll drop all their leaves in the times when they drop their leaves they obviously still want to be able to photosynthesize to be able to produce energy and grow. So they've adapted and now their bark will photosynthesize during the times that they don't have leaves present. Fascinating. It's really cool. Does that mean they're doing that all the time? Um, Yes and no. Um, I mean, it depends on the type of plant um, and it also depends on the different type of mechanism of photosynthesis. So there's three different types of photosynthesis. There's C3, C4, and then CAM. And it basically goes into the whole like scientific of how they convert the um, carbon structures and everything mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. And then also the time that it happens. So a lot of um, cacti are uh, CAM uh, plants, so they will actually photosynthesize at night um, because if they were to do it during the day and have all of their pores open and everything, it's so hot that they they would lose yeah they would lose so much of their moisture that they need so basically they wait until nighttime when it's cooler and they can you know do it easier
0: does Mm. that explain the general maybe it's not even botanically correct (laughs) but the general consensus that cacti grow slowly because they're not able to photosynthesize in stronger lights? Like they're having to make do with turning energy at a slower rate because they're doing it overnight?
1: Um, I think the fact that arid cacti generally grow slower is more towards their uh, structural mechanisms of how they store water um, Mm. and being able to... You, you have to think that if you're a barrel cactus that is super round, in order to keep that size and shape and grow, you have to do it slowly or else you would become really spindly at the top mm-hmm. and, it, you know, you would lose your, your structure.
0: Weird. Mm. That's fascinating. So what else... If we're not going to call it a leaf, which I may still mess Mm. up in the future, (laughs) uh, and maybe Zach will too. so I'm definitely calling that a leaf. Yeah, so I don't (laughs) feel as bad. Uh, Just kidding. It's a stem. (laughs) What what, Do we have any idea what makes it take on the different shapes? Is that just more evolution?
1: Yeah, okay. So uh, let me touch back on this. So a phyloclade is technically what you would call it. It's a stem that is modified to act as a leaf. But additional fun fact... That means that all of the spines on cacti are actually modified leaves. Plot twist! <laughs> what? So basically, think of it as on a regular tree, you have your branch, which is a stem, and it puts out a leaf. Well, on cacti, you have your main body, which, which is going to be your stem, and then your spines are your leaves, Interesting now, but they don't because of this whole stem is
0: doing all the photosynthesis work, mm-hmm. they're not but the thorns are not doing
1: any of that. Right. so they were they were able to then, because the stems took on the properties of the leaves, they were able to modify their leaves into spines and use them strictly for protection and not do typical leaf things. God. So now, they got
2: the easy way out. I
1: do want to touch on though. You use the word thorns. Thorns are different from spines. Okay. So thorns are actually modified stem, whereas spines are modified leaves. So cacti don't have thorns. Cacti have spines. Interesting. So what? What? Well, your tree has a thorn. Yeah. So um, basically, there are. Uh, or a rose. There, there are different tr- there are different trees that will have thorns where it comes out of the stem and not come out of the axis where the leaf would. But actually, see, you're good. You're doing good with segways for me. This was not <laughs> planned. You bring up roses. Roses actually have prickles. So, prickles. Oh, I, I don't need the third. I was prickles, just in my head, man. Zach. I was Prickles just getting- are neither leaf nor stem, but outgrowths of the epidermis or cortex beneath it. So, basically, they are neither functioning as a leaf nor functioning as a stem. They're strictly just an outgrowth of the skin. So, a
0: weird mole?
1: Yeah. An and, irregular mole that, if it was on a human, you definitely want to go to the doctor for. Interesting. There are so
2: many eighty songs that need to be rewritten now. That's what I'm saying. Like...
1: You're right. Every rose has a prickle. Yeah, right? yeah it doesn't, it doesn't come the off the tongue. Yeah. It
0: doesn't quite ring as well, but yeah. it would not be botanically accurate. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating, Brett. What are all epiphytic the same? jungle cactus the same
1: yeah so this is actually a trait for the entire family of cactaceae all cactaceae have phyloclades
0: interesting that's fascinating so you also mentioned some other terms there were there other terms you
1: okay so um i'm not sure if i define it so phylloclade is greek for phylo which is leaf and clados, which is branch So it basically stands for a leaf branch, which is what we're going for. I mean, that makes sense. The term phyloclade is used uh, interchangeably with cladophyll, which literally is just the same two Greek stems but switched. So it's branch leaf instead of leaf branch. Um, Basically, different publications will use different terms, but they they refer to the same adaptation. So answer me
0: this, Brett. If they're epiphytic jungle cactus, is that also make them
1: easier to propagate versus traditional cactus absolutely yeah absolutely um you had mentioned that you know arid cacti are known to be pretty slow growing um that is not necessarily the case with epiphytic jungle cacti um because they don't have to worry about protection and water storage as much um they're able to basically instead of you know Tight, thick barrels produce these really long, thin uh, phyloclades, um, That their growth is is definitely faster. That's wild because
0: it also makes sense. Like that a cactus w- having to protect itself would grow slower because like it's that hedging your bet against. You know, in the desert, mm-hmm. there's no consistent water cycles. So right. you're all like, not only are you doing it for self protection, but you're also like i'm not gonna bet real strong i'm gonna get rain in the next two weeks Mm -hmm. you know you're kind of like holding out on that reserve too but if you're in a jungle where there's plenty of light you know where you're trying to get to there's plenty of moisture i'm sure there's plenty of other bioactive things going on that provide the nutrients but going back to something you said earlier you said that they like to find things to host on
1: right so uh basically epiphytic jungle cacti will um They'll flower and they have really small flowers and then they'll produce berries, which are really small berries. And inside the berries are uh, usually tens of tiny, tiny seeds that are inside and mixed in with the inside of this berries is like goo. It's sticky goo. And so basically what will happen is wherever they are up in the canopy, once they um, fruit and those fruits will either fall off. And wherever they land, because it's a sticky substance, will stick to it. And then those seeds are able to germinate without getting washed away in the rain. Interesting. As well, birds will eat the berries. And then wherever they fly to and defecate, usually the berries are so sticky that it'll get stuck to their butt. And then the birds will have to wipe their butt on a surface. And because the birds are wiping it on a surface and it's sticky, it then will get adhered. To that surface, and then they'll be able to start their life there. Plants
0: are so cool. Yeah, right.
1: Like to to be able to figure out and you know manipulate literally how they look and how they grow and how they function to like further uh make themselves be out there in the world is so cool. Now because of all these
0: things that you've mentioned, Mm -hmm. a lot of words I probably will not try to (laughs) repronounce because uh, I'll probably mess it up. But is are we of the belief that they all kind of morphed in the new world into... Because there's several different types. We kind right. of touched on that. But do we have any more... How did we start classifying or realizing like, yo, Utah has crazier ones than Brazil does and and all these other... Like, are there ones that are regional that we know of?
1: Yeah, so... Uh the family cactaceae has a couple different tribes, and so then your tribes are going to basically house your different types. So there are arid types that are, you know, close more closely related to each other than some of these epiphytic jungle cacti are. Um, and a lot of it is regional. Uh, you have to think that the way that evolution works is basically you'll have a set limited amount of species in an area, but then over time they'll each... Evolve into their own specific niches, and then by changing their uh, structures to grow and become better adapted for those individual niches, um, they then will solidify themselves as independent species over time.
0: Interesting. What
1: what if somebody had one of these at home? What mm-hmm.
0: what is care information that separates this from the other types of cactus?
1: Sure. So, uh, also, I want to go back to you asked if they were easy to propagate. So, um, basically, because these uh, plants are long and thin, you have to think if it's growing up in a tree canopy, they could be hanging, the term would be pendant, is the botanical term for hanging, um, for three, six 10 feet down off of a tree branch. So naturally with wind, with everything that goes on up in the canopy, pieces could break off easily. And then they are adapted to wherever those pieces break off. If they were to land on somewhere moist, they then would easily be able to root in.
2: Whereas Mm. if
1: you look at a desert, there are really no times that you would ever casually see cactuses being broken in half and strewn somewhere else for them to have to try to root in. Basically, in a desert, once a cactus gets started, that's where it lives its entire life. Mm -hmm. Um, So because of the different type of uh, growing environments that they come from, I think that's why they are adapted um, considerably better uh, to root easier. That's wild. Mm. So then to touch on care. So they are growing in the rainforest canopy, which is shaded by the, the tops of the trees. So we are looking at lower light levels, um, low indirect, somewhat bright light. Um, they do like to stay consistently moist, never sitting in any water, but also they can being cacti deal with drought fairly well. Um, as in, you could let them go dry in between waterings and they would be fine. You're not going to get leaves that crisp up or anything. If anything, you'll see the phyloclades will look a little bit shriveled um, and you could just give them water again. But basically, where they're coming from in a cloud forest type situation, they would be, they would have moisture around them at all times. So when trying to grow it at home, you would want to try to replicate those conditions. So high
0: humidity when you can.
1: High humidity is preferred, but they are very adaptable.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is an amazing plant. Now, one thing I've seen them do before is, and I'm not botanically describing this <laughs> correct, but when they do go through a lot of stress, they'll put the places where they'll develop new growth points mm-hmm. is also kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, so actually, okay, we can go back to the whole discussion of phyloclades and stuff. So the area where spines arise from on the phyloclade is known as an areola. So, an areola is basically where the bud forms. So, new growth comes from the areola. So, I mean, that's the same with regular plants, if you think of stems and leaves. You know, mm-hmm. that's where the bud is. That's where the, the meristematic tissue is. And so, uh, epiphytic jungle cacti and even some arid cacti will form new growth from those aerial um, spots. And so on an epiphytic jungle cacti, when you start to see it branch, basically it's at an apex where a, if it had a spine, would come from. And because those spines aren't there, that's still where the growth tissue technically is.
0: That's fascinating. So that is an entirely that is where they produce the new growth points. Is kind of exactly at those p- spots of the leaf. that well, not the leaves the stems. Yes, that's Yay, interesting. Yes. Yeah, see, I'm learning. I'm learning. <laughs> uh that's fascinating. What what else am I missing on uh, epiphytic jungle cactus?
1: All right, so let's talk about the blooms. Let's talk about the flowers. Fair enough. So, I was going to say,
0: have you ever seen one?
1: Yeah. So we had probably close to a year ago. We had. Um, filmed a time-lapse of my Selenocerius grandiflorus bloom. And Mm. so a lot of epiphytic jungle cacti are known as uh, queen of the night flowers as a common name. Basically, they will get these big, really beautiful blooms that open for just one night. So it'll start opening usually 10 p.m. and then by 4 a.m. it's closed and that's it. Wow. One night. One night. That's
0: wild. And they
1: put a lot of, lot of energy into these big showy blooms. Um, and these blooms, because they open at night, are usually pollinated by bats. I was going to say, what pollinates noc- them? Some sort of nocturnal creature.
0: So a bat will actually mess with it. Mm-hmm.
1: That's and wild. And usually, uh, usually the big showy blooms will have a very strong fragrance to it.
0: To attract them. Exactly. Well, I mean, that makes sense. You can't exactly see in the dark all too well, so you start <laughs> going by other things. Do they have any natural predators that i mean you mentioned that no one's going after mm-hmm. the moisture like they would a traditional the cactus biggest,
1: for for most plants living in a rainforest the biggest issue that they have is competition for space between other plants um it really is i mean you have to think if you're 50 feet up in the air there's not going to be that many things trying to eat it Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a matter of every single tree trunk is filled with a myriad of other plants that are also trying to reach for the light. Yeah, exactly, some that really estate right competition there. of other plants is your biggest issue. But
0: no, if a bat pollinates, there's no lemur that's also like this is a tasty snack <laughs> and like <going laughs> no at all. I
1: mean, the berries are eaten, like I said, by birds and other things, but that's on purpose. The plant wants to be eaten that way.
0: If mm. it only opens for one night. Does that require multiple blooms to have opened simultaneously in order to get the cross-pollinization to happen?
1: Yeah, so depending on the age and the uh, growing conditions and everything, um, there can be uh, either a bunch of blooms on the same night or they'll do blooms on different nights and spread it out.
0: Interesting, but you do need to have pollen from one or can it self-pollinate uh, in that way? So
1: most are actually able to self-pollinate. Um, it can happen at different... Like uh, when the flower opens, they can um, enable their female and male parts at different times. Um, but most cacti, for the most part, can be self-pollinated. Um, and especially some epiphytic jungle cacti like Ripsalis will self-pollinate themselves On their own. They don't even need uh, like an insect or outside creature. Really? Basically, they'll flower and then the flower dies and a berry forms with seeds in it.
0: Is that the same with traditional cactus?
1: Uh, No, not always the case. Okay.
0: Because I was going to say, it makes sense if that were the case for normal cactus because you may be the only one sticking up by yourself.
1: Ripsalis are different from, so the epiphytic jungle cacti I was just describing with the big, showy blooms, um, those are primarily. Um, epiphytic jungle cacti of the Hyloseriae uh, tribe, whereas Ripsalis are in a different tribe. And so they have really, really small, almost not noticeable flowers. And so because their flowers are so small, I think they've evolved this ability to not have to rely on pollinators because they couldn't attract anyone if they wanted to. (laughs) So they're not even going to worry about it and they're just going to do it themselves.
0: Interesting. So that was probably part of the evolution as well over time
2: wild and if i had one of these at home and i wanted to catch that one night that it does bloom are there some signs that it's getting ready to go or yeah so i mean
1: a flower could take weeks to fully develop from bud to finally bursting open um but you would just have to watch it and as it gets close to opening basically the the head of the flower will start to swell um it'll look bulbous basically
0: and where is that flower coming out of the stem
1: um it would be from an aerial okay okay so same
0: spot as new growth would form just it so sometimes it's trying to do the pollination route and do offsprings that way and then there are other environmental triggers that can make it instead produce new growth points at those points as well
1: correct and also if that flower falls off it could then grow new stem from that same spot
0: ah so if try number one doesn't work We'll at least devote some energy yeah, to making it, exactly. our own spin If we can't
1: sexually reproduce, we'll just go back to vegetative.
0: That's interesting. Mm. So they're aware of that and are able to, I guess, maintain their species by that.
1: Exactly. Characteristic okay, so since we're talking about really cool, unique adaptations in this group of plants known as epiphytic jungle cacti, I do want to touch on there is this one species, um, previously known as Selenocereus wittii, which is now Strophocactus wittii, that is only one of three species found in the central Amazon basin. It grows epiphytically on the trunks of trees in seasonally flooded forests which are regularly flooded for a few weeks each year. During this time, the seeds spread through the water, which is unique within the cactus family. So let me explain this. So there's only one that does this? There's only one cactus in the entire family that is okay, I gotta hear That this. is spreadable through water, that relies on water as its mechanism for uh, distribution. That's not. Nice. So basically, this cactus will grow shingling up against the host tree, on a part of the tree that most of the time of the year looks like it's up in the air because it's, let's say, six feet above the ground. But in those few weeks that they flood, the water will actually rise to the level of where the cactus is growing. So let's say six feet on the tree. At that time that it's the rainy season, the cactus knows it. And it's going to flower. Once it flowers and then is pollinated, those berries are actually buoyant and will float. And so the water, which has now risen six feet to meet the cactus, will drop those berries. And those berries will then go with the water to another place, eventually break open and touch another part of the tree that's six feet up in the from the ground where it typically would be, mm. get stuck. And then at that time, the water recedes, goes down. Now that cactus is six feet up in the air. Repeat the process. And repeat the process. Holy
0: cow. What the heck? Now, okay, so one question about... The, sorry, <laughs> mind blown, Zach uh, and Brett. I mean, that's insane. What area of the world are they native to?
1: Yeah, so that's the that's Amazon Basin. Okay, good. Um, so, so my backyard doesn't S- America- get six no, no, foot no. of <laughs> flooded water. S- that, South America.
0: Interesting. So they have that... They, does the water in that scenario, is the goal, obviously it's to move to another host tree, but mm-hmm. are those waters that are going to, as they recede, take them a far distance, or is it just going to be somewhat localized?
1: I mean, when it comes to flooding, usually it is, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's somewhat localized. Okay. Um, basically, it would be a tributary of a river um, that is only for a couple weeks flooded during the rainy season. Um, So, I mean, the rest of the area outside of that tributary of the river isn't going to get flooded at the same level.
0: How long can they last as the original bobbers of the world? (laughs) Uh, Can you
1: clarify clarify that question? (laughs) If
0: they're buoyant, how long can they stay buoyant? Because there are other seeds where you can drop them into water and they will be buoyant until the point that they take on more moisture or whatever and then they eventually drop.
1: Um, that is a good question. I imagine that they would be able to stay buoyant for those few weeks. And then essentially, if they weren't lucky enough to get stuck to something and the water recedes, they would end up on the ground and they would die because there's, they didn't get attached to anything.
0: And they, they are not well suited
1: to be able to survive on the floor.
0: Right. Right. Interesting
1: because they so, um, strophocactus wittii grows. I I have one in the greenhouse, so you'll have to take a picture and you can post it Mm because the way that it grows is really, really cool. Mm. Um, but because they are they're a purely shingling cacti, so like we grow um, chrysocardium here and we grow it in a four inch pot because. Uh, you know, it puts out these long pendant leaves that hang down everything like this. Witty eye only grows flush up against something. You can't grow it in a pot any other way. Interesting. So it, it will only start growing if it's attached. Exactly. And so th- it really is not adapted to grow on the ground. That's crazy.
2: <laughs> hmm. Now, when it, if, so if you try to grow it in a pot, will it? start growing and search for something to latch onto, or can it just sense that there is nothing right in its immediate Yeah, does it even germinate, or does it just...
1: I have seen a a grower down in Homestead who tried to grow it in pots, and it was just so ridiculously slow. Like, the Mm -hmm. plant knew that that everything about how it was being tried to be grown was wrong, that Mm -hmm. it just didn't want to do anything.
0: Hmm. Interesting. That's wild. How many berries do most of these release per
1: plant um well so like ripsalis are uh definitely floriferous so there's like tens of hundreds of flowers on a ripsalis when they bloom and so then each small berry can have like i said 10 to 20 you know seeds in each of them um so a lot um but then these other the larger flowered guys may have less flowers but then this the berries that form from that will have hundreds of seeds in it
0: well i mean i guess it makes sense you got to roll your dice a lot if you're hoping that all of those situations kind of line up right
1: absolutely yeah that's wild it is kind of like the yeah you take the gamble so you put so much energy into one big showy bloom that to then you know further your chances you're going to make a bunch of tiny seeds Now you may not know the answer to this, but are they, when they, is there rhythm to when they
0: choose to bloom? Like, are they impacted by the moon cycle Mm. or by other things? Like, do they kind of know when the bats are most likely to be? Obviously it's at night, but
1: like, um, there's a, yeah, there's different things that could trigger it. It really depends on the growing conditions that you have that particular plant in, um, cooler nights and or shorter days can trigger flowering. Um, also highlight in some situations can trigger flowering. Really, they're looking for a change in the environment. Usually, usually some sort of drastic change, no matter what it is, is going to induce flowering. And that's the case for most plants. Right. Basically, they notice that, hey, something's up as a last ditch effort. Let me try to shoot my shot you know, mm-hmm. go sexual, one last big hurrah before I potentially die. I gotta leave my legacy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
0: what am I passing on to? I don't even have kids. And yeah, if I am, <laughs> they need more brothers and sisters. So, <laughs> that's fascinating. What other, um, what other part, what other epiphytic jungle cactus are your eyes focused on that perhaps customers may be able to see in the future?
1: Yeah, so uh, currently we have um, produced five. Six different epiphytic jungle cacti, which is pretty exciting. Um, But in the pipeline, we have growing at the greenhouse an additional one, two, three, four, five.
0: Also, I love how many notes Brett comes into these podcasts.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Six more? Six more. Um, So they're all really cool in their unique way. So four different ripsalis, two more epiphylums. Um, It's something that we can grow in aeroid mix in a three-inch pot super easy to root. They're super unique looking. They're all different in their, in their independent way. I mean, some are really hairy, some are super curly, some are completely smooth and put like, put out, like, noodle-looking arms, you know. Uh,
0: Noodle-looking arms. Noodle-looking
1: arms. I stand by that. I want a noodle-looking arm plant. (laughs) I'm waiting on it. (laughs) Um, And so we do have a lot of those growing in 3-inch. It's something that we probably have to do two more rounds of chopping and propping um, before we can release the first batch. But I'd give it three months. But they are going to see some more.
0: Yes. Now, to skip all the way back to some care information... If I was going to care for one of these, it almost sounded like earlier a bathroom, depending on the lighting Mm -hmm. situation, may be a good spot to consider putting them. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, so I would always recommend hang it if you can, because then they'll be able to grow pendulously like they want. They want to hang down. Um, So then any sort of situation, yeah, lower light. I mean, I have a couple of epiphytic jungle cacti in my bathroom. I have one in my shower. Um, It's... They're easy. When you give them water, they'll take it. If you forget about them, they're fine. Um, That's a
0: house plant for a lot of people right yeah, there. Yeah, exactly.
1: Mm. Um, and they don't want high light, which is like one of the biggest issues that we run into with consumers is they don't have enough light. So if you're worried you don't have enough light, these plants are for you.
0: That's awesome. Now, has there been a lot of effort you know, you, you've you gone through kind of how they're classified and mm-hmm. stuff. Has there been a lot of research in making new ones as of late or finding more out than maybe we knew before? Has there been any recent updates?
1: Yeah, so um, actually there was a paper published November of 2017 called, I'm going to read the title and then I'll explain Of course he has it, Zach. Of course he has Um, it with him. (laughs) What would you you expect? (laughs) (laughs) A phylogenetic framework for the Hylo cactaceae and implications for the circumscription of the genera. So basically, they sampled 60 out of the 63 currently accepted species and 17 out of the 19 infraspecific taxa so an infraspecific taxa is a subspecies okay so they took 60 species and 17 subspecies and using plastid genome technology of four different plastid parts they were able to study the genetics and then compare them on a genetic level of who is actually more closely related to who like dna
0: yes like like uh, ancestry.com, but for plants? Yes. Okay.
1: So, uh, so um, plants have these plastids, which are uh, like chlorophyll is a plastid. Um, so, think of in humans, we have mitochondria. So, mitochondria and chlorophyll are organelles that exist inside eukaryotic cells through what we call embryos. Emb- through what we call endosymbiotic theory, that basically was this idea that there were original single-cell organisms that weren't able to produce energy as efficiently as these other single-cell organisms. And the energy-producing ones were engulfed by the original single-cell ones, but they were able to continue living inside... These And that one was able to harness the energy that the other one was producing. And so that's how we think we now have mitochondria and plants have chlorophyll. So to kind of give um, basis to that theory, chlorophyll and mitochondria have their own set of DNA that is separate from the rest of the cell's DNA. Which kind of shows how it's possible that they could have once been a completely different organism. So mm-hmm. they will take and study the DNA of those plastids inside the plant cells um, because they are, it's a different set of DNA that all plants have in various degrees. And so then by comparing species to species, you can see. Where do the where do the A's overlap? Where do the T's overlap? Where do the G's overlap? Where do the C's overlap? And the ones that overlap closest are more closely related.
0: Interesting. So well. does that end in us knowing that they came from one?
1: What's the... Yeah, so uh, basically it can either be monophyletic or, or uh, polyphyletic, which means it all stems from one or it's more sticky than that. And it stemmed from various. Um, Where previously, before we were able to do this sort of, uh, you know, genome sequencing technology,
0: technology. we
1: classified plants based on uh, how similar their structures were. So did the leaves look similar? Did the flowers look the same? Do all of these have spines? Do these not have spines? Um, And we did, as humans, we did a pretty good job um, classifying them. But so now, anytime that you see any sort of revision or classification of a genus or a species, there is real scientific evidence that is going to back it up that just disproves what we formerly thought.
0: Because we formally only based it on... Our human perception of what we see being different, exactly. But obviously, there's these things that are different at a much deeper level than what our eyes can see.
1: And that's the same with humans. I mean, if you were, if you weren't to do a, um, you know, genetic test on everyone, some of us, like Zach and Shane, look pretty similar, I guess, in the grand scheme of things, compared to some people. But that doesn't mean that you're related,
0: mm-hmm. right? But it also but as humans, following that example, if you have a brother that doesn't look like you, then you also have the opposite assumption, which is like, exactly. well, that can't possibly be mm-hmm. a member of your family because, like, that looks nothing like it. Which I'm sure we did to plants all over the place mm-hmm. when the when you we found the one oddball dracena that was doing something really funky. We were just like, oh, well, that can't possibly be one of those <laughs> because yeah. that thing looks completely different.
1: So, wow. um, by I mean, this article is really amazing. I think it's like 44 pages. I recommend, if you're really interested, check it out. It's free online. It'll take you probably three or four times of reading through it before you understand what you're reading. Um, But it's interesting because what they did was they took those uh, 77 plants, basically, and they reassigned them based on genetic uh, material of who should actually be related to who. And so, because of that, sometimes there are name changes. And so, what we sell as a chrysocardium is now actually an epiphylum. Interesting. It was originally described as an epiphylum, but then in 1959, it was placed into the genus Marniera until that genus was no longer accepted. Then in 1991, it was treated under Selenocerius because it had... because it had spiny fruits, which is untypical for epiphylum. But the data obtained in this new study confirms the species to be part of epiphylum. So like I was just saying, they called it one thing, because if it looks and acts as one thing, it's that thing, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but so now they have shown that it actually is its is not a selenocerius, it is an epiphylum, um, and should be treated as such. Interesting. Now,
0: getting away from the exact topic we're talking on, but since we're on the topic of reclassifications and stuff, what often spurs these? Are these just more Bretts being like, I wonder what would happen <laughs> since I own this DNA machine if I put it in here and take a look? Or are there specific commercial
1: no, things that I are mean, triggering really, it? I mean, really, you were right firsthand. This is someone who has dedicated their life. They're passionate. probably getting a PhD, and they need to, you know, they need to... Publish a paper um, to, to be able to get their uh, degree in schooling, and they are just really really passionate about epiphytic jungle cacti. There was no one else who had done it. Like they were saying, the last classification of this group had happened in 1991, so this was 2017. So in those uh, you know in those years, a lot of technological advancement had happened. That they said, hey, you know what? I want to be the person. And I want to I want to take it upon myself and I want to, you know, do this scientifically and and classify it how it should for the betterment of science.
0: That's awesome, because that's always like the first thing that comes to my mind is like, okay, great. Somebody had the passion and the Mm -hmm. desire to go do this for this. But my thought goes to, well, when is insert family here going (laughs) to go through this same process? Because it doesn't it. can sometimes feel, especially to consumers and to growers for that matter, like it comes out of left field. Like mm-hmm. there was no, we didn't have problems with epiphytic jungle right. cactus. But obviously, like you're saying, if he's you know, the person is studying for school or whatever else is what is what's driving this, or just his sheer or his or her sheer passion. For that particular thing, but there's no governing body saying, all right, well, glad we knocked those two off the list. Let's Mm.
1: move on to the next one. Well, I mean, as scientists, there's a perpetual thirst for knowledge. Of course. So it's the idea that if we don't know it, we should know it. I mean, that's really, that's what humankind kind of is. Or at least try to figure it out. We want to know how the world works. And so as plants that don't have voices for themselves, this... Selena, um, Selenocerius chrysocardium this entire time could have been screaming at us, I'm an epiphylum! I'm an epiphylum! Why aren't you listening to me? But we don't know, so... Well, you don't without... look like it, son. <laughs> <laughs> so without, yeah, without doing this um, for the betterment of just being able to understand plants, we already know so little about plants. So it's just someone taking a one step further to uh, trying to figure them out.
0: And one of the things I'm really excited for as the technology like you're mentioning becomes because I think correct me if I'm wrong and this is a statement even beyond plants right we've gone through in the last 20 years or so technology for the most part not that technology didn't exist before then but most of these what we'd call modern technologies are definitely like 20 years old Mm -hmm. 30 years old at max so we're still they're still in universities Mm there's still this equipment the stuff that you would actually need to run these tests and stuff is somewhat still locked up or you know there's a level of access you have to get to Mm -hmm. but i'm hopeful that in the years ahead it becomes more readily available for people even like us as growers to be like okay cool we want to be accurate too let's see if this philodendron actually is what it says it is and and line it up but the other thing that i think is going to be really cool when we start getting that access to that information Mm -hmm is a lot of times, and I'm not saying that epiphytic jungle cacti specifically had breeders involved, manual breeding programs, Mm. but there's a lot of plants out there right now that are probably not properly attributed to the region of the world or the person who could have had a heavy hand in that, but as they proved with some of Bob McCauley's stuff, when you start... Doing DNA analysis, you don't always have a for sure thing with these things, right? but you can start at least lining things up that make sense and go, well, this does fit under the same parents he was known to be messing with quite Mm -hmm. often. And here's a couple other, you know, you can compare something that was registered by that breeder or whatever. With some other things that look like it could have also been done in the same way and Mm -hmm. came from the same region of the world and start putting some of these things together, which I hope will start to give some credit to whether it's the wild and nature is the breeder or if there are some people involved, you know, hopefully it gives us more context, even down to what country it came from or who maybe was involved in getting that particular cultivar species to be something we know about Mm -hmm. or have in the world.
1: And by understanding how closely or not closely related plant species are gives you an idea of how uh, readily uh, accessible or easy it is for them to crossbreed. Because if something is distantly related, their genetics may not meld as easier as something that was really close together. Um, And then going back to your point of, Uh, As the uh, technology becomes more readily available, not only do I want the technology to become more readily available, I really hope and believe that our passion and desire for wanting to understand the plants on this level continues and Mm -hmm. that – I really hope there are a bunch of people out there who are like, oh my goodness, please give me the technology. I want to do this. I want to do this. And right now I feel like horticulture and just the green industry in general is really lacking compared to a lot of other industries um, in in interest and and people out here um, really wanting to further it. And so... Yeah, please make the technology accessible, but we need the people to want mm-hmm. to do this and commit their lives to this. Because this also isn't easy. This was published November 2017. This is probably two or three years worth of work to publish one paper.
0: And you're mm-hmm. and the whole process you're doing, I'm assuming, I've never seen the machine work, but mm. I'm assuming you're not looking at a plant while you're it's, doing no, it either. So, labor. like, it's a, mm. it's not even if you're super passionate about plants, you mm-hmm. may not have the patience for continuing to go through the sanitary process exactly. of a lab environment for three years. Yeah, I'm
2: sure plenty of double checking, triple checking, making sure mm-hmm. that when he puts this out, he knows for sure that the facts are there. to. to and back now you're it. also
1: putting all of those facts in a correct, scientifically accurate 43 page paper. Mm. You know, right. so it's, it, it is more than, yeah, you have to have the passion for plants, but you have to be able to follow through and spend those labor intensive hours hours in the lab and in front of a computer and doing all of your sources cited and you know everything like that that's awesome
0: yeah and it would make sense too as we get that technology to know some of these dna histories that even if you just see that it was not a very complex structure like you were saying then maybe this has been a much longer standing species without Mm -hmm. without evolution involved which i feel like even Yeah, not only does it allude to what could be successful in the breeding program, but may even allude to the one that's been around for a thousand years or more without any major evolution that we know of or Mm -hmm. any major crossing. That's probably going to be the hardiest one of the bunch to care for in a care environment compared to the ones that are super finicky because they've gotten... All the way specific and all the way down to the specific environment that they came from. Right, that's valid. And they were just super cut out for that niche compared mm. to the more mass, you know, the, the one that's been so stable for so long and is available in more mass because of it. Absolutely. That's fascinating. Well, I'm really excited to hear, keep us posted too if mm. you see any more of these research paper, obviously, on things even wider than <laughs> epiphytic jungle cacti and all of their stems, I learned something today, uh, but yeah, that's awesome, Brett. Any other closing remarks on?
1: Um, just that. Uh, as a listener, I hope you guys have taken this education and this knowledge from this portion of this podcast, and I hope it inspires you. It doesn't have to be epiphytic jungle cacti, but I hope it you know fuels your passion in some sort of plant realm, whether it be anything, whether it want to be wanting to grow plants more, whether it is uh, understanding them on a deeper scientific level like this. If you're interested in it, look for the information. It may be hard to find, but there are resources out there. And I really hope that you can take this and, uh, yeah, fuel your fire and, uh, let the plants consume you. I mean, I know Shane and I our entire lives are plants. And yeah. I mean it's a it's a good path. I recommend it. Oh, highly. <laughs> I
0: hi- highly recommend it. And if you do make any of these big discoveries, Phil I'm sure Brett would not mind yes. reading through your paper and your <laughs> hypothesis too. So uh yeah, definitely pass it along and it's gonna be cool to see what the industry does mm-hmm. do when it comes to cause this isn't gonna be the only, you know group of plants that gets reclassified in the coming years this is going to be something that and maybe we'll
1: make that a thing every couple weeks we'll talk about a new revision yeah Yeah. well i'm looking
0: forward to it guys um great podcast today thank you so much for being here brett and all the research like you said i shouldn't have underestimated zach you're percent on that. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of the Every Plant Story podcast. You can find more about the podcast at everyplantstory.com. You can follow us on Instagram at at everyplantstory. And you can also purchase plants that we grow ourselves and ship directly from our greenhouse to your house on our website, gabriellaplants.com. And with that, we'll see you guys next week.
1: Bye, guys. See ya.